All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 5 through 23. That'll be our text. Navigate over there on your device or open your uh, analog Bible. The topic, Paul tells the Corinthians about the reward seat of Jesus, where the quality of our works will be tested by fire. The title of our message, remember, only you can prevent reward loss fires. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks this morning for everything we've experienced thus far, the fellowship, the worship, Lord. And now we pray that you would speak to us uh, with your word, through your word, by your word, and your spirit who is present in this place as we've gathered. Teach us as you promised you would. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. I came across this list of slogans taken from real church marquees. Download your worries, upload peace. This church is prayer conditioned. Eh. God answers email. Body piercing saved my life. And my favorite, for all you do, His blood's for you. This is why we don't have a church marquee. (laughs) Suppose for a moment that the first century church at Corinth had a marquee. Here are some of the things that, according to the Apostle Paul, might have been posted on it. Babes in Christ, still carnal, behaving like mere men, envy, strife, and division among us, building with wood, hay, and straw. So let's take the next step. If Calvary Hanford had a marquee sign, what would we say? What would the Apostle Paul say? Or if you want to cut to the chase, what would Jesus say? Before answering, let's take a look in our passage at one of the Apostle Paul's favorite illustrations of the church. He describes himself as a wise master builder who was one of the grace-gifted guys called by God, as he states it, lay the foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ. And then he'll go on to say that believers are simultaneously the builders who continue working on the foundation, and we are the building being built upon the foundation. Buildings get inspected as they are being built. So do we as we are building and being built and upon completion of our earthly life. We should welcome it because Jesus is the one doing the inspecting. Paul is going to encourage us to build well, heading towards our final inspection before the Lord. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, what will Jesus say to you as his builder? And number two, what will Jesus say to us as his building? Let's take a look, first of all, individually as builders. I think it was A.W. Tozer who described some Bible teachers as spinning straw from gold. Get that? You're supposed to spin gold from straw, but sometimes we get it backwards because we dive in too early and miss the big picture. We begin dissecting before admiring the beauty of the rose. The big picture here in our text is this. It's simple, but it's exciting. God has given us the incredible opportunity to assist him in his work on the earth. When you consider all the ways God could have done his work, it's stunning to think he solicits our participation. I mean, just think how lame I am. I use myself as an example. And yet God has chosen to use me. It's the greatest thing in the world. And you're just as lame, if not worse. But anyway, I just wanted to use myself first so I could soften the blow. But the truth is, none of us are worthy of God using us. It's enough that he saved us. And then he says, now guess what? I want you to help me in this thing. If you're in Christ, 
You're a builder and you can build things that have eternal value. You can build from the moment you are born again until the moment you exhale for the last time. You need no natural talent or ability because you are gifted by God to build when and where he directs you. In fact, oftentimes natural talents and abilities can get in the way. I like what David Guzik said, that in general, we cannot work without him, but he will not work without us. Now, obviously, God's plan of salvation marches forward by his providence, uh, but there is a, a great sense in which he doesn't work without us. And you just read the book of Acts. We're going through it on Wednesday night. Gino's teaching it. Great studies. And, and uh, you see that this is how God works. He uses lame human beings who've come to salvation to do incredible things. Now, the Corinthians had several builders to uh, example, notably Paul and Apollos. And so we begin in verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. Paul and Apollos were the two men most responsible for laying the foundation and building upon it in Corinth. They were ministers, the word is uh, servants. They preached the cross and many believed and the Lord gave the gift of eternal life. Uh, Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul and Apollos are compared to sowers in a field. Some seed fell on good ground, and God gave the increase in terms of salvation. Now, I thought we were talking about building, not farming. Well, we are, and maybe this will help. In Matthew 13, 44, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. For joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In that parable, the man represents Jesus, the field is the world, the purchase of the field refers to the cross by which Jesus provides salvation, potentially for the sins of the whole world, especially those who believe. Then in the parable of the sower, Jesus said that the field being sown was the world. And so putting that all together, we could say that Jesus has acquired a field in the field of the earth by his crucifixion. He sends laborers to sow the word of God. The fruit from their sowing is the salvation of those who believe. In that field, set apart spiritually from the world, a foundation has been laid by the apostles. Jesus is building his church on that foundation with your assistance. And so, keeping within the building metaphor, uh, the building has to be built on something. And we know it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ in the world Uh, because of his cross. And so the the farmer sows because there's land upon which the building is built. Now, there were lots of temples in Corinth to the various so-called gods, but there never was a temple like the one built on the foundation of Jesus. Its members were and we are living stones. Unique hardly describes the temple of the Holy Spirit on earth. One of the sub-themes here maybe not even a sub-theme, one of the big themes here in these verses is the absolute uniqueness and wonder of the church on the earth in our gatherings, but also just out scattered in the world. But, uh, and, and we don't think about that too often. We are unlike any other uh, entity that the world has ever seen. Uh, The closest you get to it is the tabernacle in the wilderness where God's very presence was there. Uh, The Lord says that when we gather together, the Holy Spirit is in our midst, as we'll see in point number two. And so it's just, uh, it, it should be an incredible thing that there is a church. And so verse seven, then neither he who plants is anything, 
nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. It wasn't that Paul was a great sower. I mean, he didn't have the perfect flick of the wrist. You know, they didn't have sowing competitions. And Apollos didn't know exactly how to water. It wasn't their skill. They simply served God by sowing and watering, meaning they uh, preached and taught the gospel. And God saw it so that the gospel changed lives, that it fell on good ground and lives were changed. So verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Certain gifts or posts of service seem more exciting or encouraging than others. Hanford. Uh, all that matters to a servant is that he or she is faithful. Each of us will be rewarded according to our own labor, not in comparison to anyone else's. And so... Uh, Maybe even today, but probably when you're a young Christian, you, you aspire to be like somebody, Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or somebody who seems to be doing a mighty work for God. And for most of us, that doesn't really pan out, uh, but it doesn't matter because you're going to be judged on your obedience and your faithfulness as God's servant. And not everybody can have what seem to be the better postings. Uh, by the way, they're not always the better postings, but uh, they seem to be. We're all workers. It says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so we're workers on equal footing. That means we have full equal access to the Holy Spirit. We are sowing the word and building a spiritual building in the field of the world where none previously existed. Remember, the church is a mystery being revealed in the New Testament. There's no talk about the church. There's no uh, really uh, revelation of the church until you get to the New Testament. It's an absolutely new thing that has never existed before. Our impact ought to be so remarkable, therefore, that non-believers see light in the darkness and find spiritual rest and refuge. A lot of churches have gone to that name, Refuge Hanford or Refuge Lamore or something, and I don't particularly like it because it has certain connotations, but the idea is correct. The church is a refuge in that sense. People should see it uh, far away and come knowing that they can receive hope and help in that place. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Paul was given the particular grace or gift of establishing churches. We need to be a little careful about establishing churches. You're dealing with people's lives and their spiritual lives, no less, which are, it's a very, very important kind of a fragile situation. There needs to be a real leading from the Lord to establish a church, a new work. I've told you this before, and, and um, you know that this is kind of the direction I lean in. You have to really, really convince me that a, a city needs a, another church in the United States. I, I just, it's hard to believe. When I first came here, I was just visiting a friend in Visalia. Little did I know that they were setting a trap for me. <laughs> But uh, they had just started meeting on Sunday mornings here, and they thought I was a candidate, which I was not. I want to emphasize that. And uh, anyway, um, I remember the, the whole interview was very interesting because I said, why do you need another Calvary? There's a Calvary 20 miles away. And uh, I, I used to drive 45 miles a day to work 
And then I drove all day as a salesman, and then I drove another 45 miles in the snow, all uphill both times. But anyway, <laughs> no, I did. We did live in the mountains. And so, uh, but they finally convinced me that I, I could see the relevance of having a Calvary Chapel in Hanford. And then I said, yeah, but I'm not. Good luck. Have, have, <laughs> have a field day with that. Maybe it's true. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But uh, so I'm, I practice what I preach. I mean, you have to really convince me that there's a need for another church and that there isn't a church already doing a work uh, that, that you can plug into and, and help instead of uh, robbing them of their resources. Because most church plants are what we call splants now. They're splits that plant a new church. And, um, of course, every church that wants to split should read 1 Corinthians first and find out uh, what God thinks of divisions. But anyway, we need to be very careful establishing churches because we're fooling around with people's lives. Wise master builder translates to architect, but in usage, the idea is more like the person we would call the general contractor. Paul was given the plans and he established the foundation and then he turned it over to the others who would build upon it. That would make all of us, in a sense, subcontractors who take heed how we build on it. Taking heed means at least two things, trusting the foundation and building with the appropriate materials. Verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Albert Barnes says of this foundation, no true church can be reared which does not embrace and hold the true doctrines respecting him, those which pertain to his incarnation, his divine nature, his instructions, his example, his atonement, his resurrection and ascension. The reason why no true church can be established without embracing the truth as it is in Christ is that it is by him only that people can be saved. And where this doctrine is missing, all is missing that enters into the essential idea of a church. Uh, obviously, there's more in terms of the foundation, but you know, one approach to it is to understand that it's basic, fundamental, orthodox Christian doctrine based on the teachings of Christ and the apostles. And then verse 12, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. There's, uh, gosh, guys go in all kinds of directions about what these actually represent and how they fit together. One thing to consider that is sometimes overlooked is that all of these were possible building materials that were used in temples being constructed in the first century. Wood was used for doors and posts. Hay was dried grass mixed with mud and used for walls. And straw could be used as roofing material. Gold and silver refer to the costly ornamentation in temples, while precious stones probably refers to granite or marble that would be overlaid with gold and silver for the flooring and things like that. Paul is going to describe these materials being tested by fire. It seems clear enough that gold, silver, and precious stones would survive that test, whereas wood, hay, straw won't. You've seen those eerie photos, or maybe you've seen in person, that situation where homes have been destroyed after a raging fire. I remember when we lived in San Bernardino, there were fires all the time, and uh, the Panorama Fire shot down Waterman Canyon and took 400 homes in North San Bernardino. I don't believe there was any loss of life. There may have been, but it was slight. And uh, when you were able to go back into that neighborhood after things were safe, uh, there would be just slabs and chimneys. Everything else was burned to the ground. It was gone because of the heat of the fire. And so that's, that's kind of the image that we have here. 
that there are certain things that will remain when tested by fire and other things that are going to burn up. One way to approach what is being said is to simply say that you can build with materials that are either costly or that are common. Costly or common. Think of the projects around your house. There are always choices in materials. Good, better, best. Some will do the job but won't last as long. You might choose them when you're putting your house on the market or if you're renting the house. They are more common. Other materials have a much higher quality. You choose them when you're planning on living in your house for a long time. Those are costly. Keep that in mind for a moment. Verse 13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. The day is when believers stand before the reward seat and have their choice of materials tested by fire. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat, the reward seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so there's a kind of a personal inspection at the end. It's a review of our serving. It's not a determination of salvation. And to avoid any confusion, Paul insisted he himself or she herself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So this isn't a test of salvation or to see if you've worked hard enough to earn your salvation. If you're at the reward seat of Christ, you're saved. You're going to heaven. Nevertheless, the Lord wants to inspect you and see uh, about what you did in his name and on his behalf. A word about rewards. A lot of times people say they don't really care about rewards because after all, we're just going to throw our crowns at Jesus' feet and you know, it does seem kind of weird, you know, in, in one sense to, to be fighting for rewards, and, and I can at least understand that. But because of imagery in the revelation at the second coming, I've come to see rewards also as adornments we can add to our robe of righteousness as we serve Jesus. Uh, as a Christian, you're seen as dressed in a robe of pure white righteousness. That's the gift of the cross. We exchange our sin for his righteousness. But then in Revelation, it says that it talks about the righteousnesses, plural, of the saints. And it seems that our uh, work for the Lord can result in ornamentation on that robe. And the best way I know of putting it is that since it's the imagery in Revelation of our coming back with the Lord is that of a bride with his bridegroom. Uh, I've said this a million times before, but it's worth noting. Every bride wants to look as beautiful as possible for her bridegroom. And so it's not a matter of just gaining rewards so that we can go through eternity weighted down so that I look like I was rewarded more than you. Uh, it's a matter of pleasing the Lord and looking good for him. No bride wants to be as ugly as possible on her wedding day. Nobody wants to come out smelling of smoke, uh, you know, uh, because the, the, everything burned up in their test of fire. And so that's uh, another way of thinking about it. So, what will Jesus say to you as his builder? Let's restrict him to those two words I just used, costly and common. Obviously oversimplistic, but that's okay. I think we overcomplicate things to keep us from really getting to the bottom of things. Uh, 
You know, if you go into the average Christian bookstore, and we may have some books like that here too, I can't, uh, you know, our, all our books are good, but hear me out. You go to the average Christian bookstore and there's always a plan for how you really get right with God. There's a 40, 40 days of purpose or 10 days of this or 60 days of that or the prayer of Jabez or, you know, something that you kind of mimic uh, and, and all that. And it becomes very complicated. You have workbooks and study times and videos to watch and all that. It's, it's real complex. And it's so complex that you think just in the doing of it, you're serving God. And, and so, you know, you don't see other people doing it. And so maybe you're on the right track. But it really can keep us from the gist of an inspection. So here's what we all need to do from time to time. Looking at our lives as a whole, can I say that it has cost me or is costing me anything at all to be a believer in Christ? And if I say yes, then what is that cost? What or who have I given up? What have I lost? What have I been denied for serving God? So, I mean, really, if, if the Christian life is costly, then what is it costing me? Exclude any trouble or suffering that is just part of the human condition. We're examining our lives for the cost of being a Christian. And so maybe you have a sickness or an illness or a disease or something terrible has happened to you. Those are trials for sure that the Lord wants to bring you through and, and show you his grace. But, uh, and they're not costing you anything more than they would cost a non-believer. They're such as is common to man. So nitty gritty, what does it cost me to be a Christian? What have I given up? What have I lost? What have I denied myself? Where could I be today? That kind of a thing. And see, it's a very simple question, and it has very simple answers. And so when I look at my life, is it costly, or is it pretty much common and comfortable? I, I invite you at the end of our service this morning during our retrospective time to, to think about that and to answer that. Secondly, what will Jesus say to us as his building? If you Google Calvary Hanful, uh, Hanford, excuse me, you'll see we have a rating of four and a half stars out of five. What? Someone gave us a one-star rating without comment. It must have been the Sunday we took multiple offerings. No, but actually, the, she did leave her full name, and I went and looked at her Facebook site. She gave her own church, Immaculate Heart of Mary, five stars. So I, I think maybe it's a Catholic Protestant thing. I resisted the urge to give the Immaculate Heart of Mary a zero rating. But anyway, it just... just Anyway, so we have a ways to go to counter that. We need to get to four and three quarters at least. But that's a human rating. I hope the Lord has uh, more generosity towards us. So verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? This word you here is plural, meaning the believers corporately as the church. These verses are not really about us as individuals. It's true our individual bodies are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, but so is or should be our gatherings on the earth. After all, we are that building in the field into which folks come to be saved. By the way, one overlooked argument for being part of a local fellowship is that the Holy Spirit is or should be there in a special way. Folks who avoid church are ignoring that. And in a sense, uh, if folks who, and, you know, obviously here we don't keep track of attendance except mine. Uh, but uh, if you come to church as often or as infrequently as you want, that's between you and the Lord. But it's kind of like getting an invitation to meet with God in a special way. Because he says in many different areas of scripture that he, 
he's there when the church is gathered together in a special way. And so you're invited to these meetings. And so you're turning down an invite from God. Or if you're one of these people that says, well, I don't need that. I, I meet at Starbucks on Sunday morning with some friends or that. Then you're asking God to come meet with you. God says, hey, come and meet with me at Calvary Hanford. Now, I don't want to do that, but will you meet with me at Starbucks so I can have bishgati and coffee? You know, that kind of a thing. So it's, it's kind of a weird way of looking at things, but it's the truth. And so we're ignoring invitations to spend time with the Lord. Verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The first part of the verse is kind of a common proverb. It boils down to meaning that the defiler will be disciplined. You don't have to leave Corinth to see this in action. In chapter 11, we're going to be introduced to believers who were defiling the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, notably, they were getting drunk before taking communion. As a result, we read, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many die prematurely. The defilers were being disciplined by physical illness and death. Wow. Heavy duty. When you talk about wanting to be more like the first century church, remember that God was killing people in the first century church. Ananias and Sapphira, defilers in Corinth, it was a serious business. And so that's what this verse is about. It's not about losing or forfeiting your salvation. The temple of God corporately is holy. It is set apart. Again, the idea is our unique existence in the world. No example can do this justice, but we have to try. If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, think about the refuge that was provided the nine weary travelers when they first saw and entered Rivendell, the home of the elves. It was a beautiful, refreshing, seemingly timeless stop along the harsh road. That is what our gatherings ought to be like. They ought to be something beautiful and wonderful. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. The wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God has been a major topic in this letter. Paul returns to it here to emphasize once again that someone who is wise in this age, meaning they trust in man's wisdom, should rather trust in God's wisdom. In the context, he's probably getting at them to quit building with materials from outside the, what is orthodox, but quit bringing these other doctrines into the church. How can you tell if you're trusting God's wisdom? One way is that you will become a fool in the eyes of the world. And so ask yourself, do any of your choices seem foolish to others? Any of the things that you did because you're a Christian, did people think or could they think that you're a fool? They should, because what God has established seems foolish to the natural man. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. This quote is from the book of Job. It is a profound statement indicating human wisdom falls in on itself. Quite simply, men always contradict themselves and their methods don't work. Every philosophy and religion and psychology is built on a foundation of shifting sand. It doesn't work within its own system and none of them work together. And, and so it's, it's all uh, a judgment. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. This is quoted from the 94th Psalm. Human wisdom is ultimately futile in that it cannot accomplish what it needs to do. A, man's ne a man needs to be forgiven of sin, justified, declared righteous, and become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Those things can only be received by grace at the cross where Jesus took our place in death to give us eternal life. 
Verse 21, therefore, let no one boast in men for all things are yours. This boasting in men harkens back to a problem previously brought up, namely that the believers in Corinth were putting too much emphasis on particular teachers rather than looking past them to God. If I asked you who Buddhists follow, you'd probably say Buddha. Likewise, for Muslims, you might say Muhammad. We do not follow Paul or Apollos or Peter or any human teacher, living or dead. We follow Jesus, who has given men like those to his church for centuries, so we might be built up. All things are yours. Now, before you get too excited, all things are going to include things like death, as we're going to read in a minute. Paul wasn't telling me that I can have that Ferrari that I want or that I can be CEO of a chain of pastor's poor cafes. Oops, I let it slip. He's telling us that as the building of God on the earth, his temple in the field, we have an entirely new and different perspective on everything. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, who is Peter, or the word, uh, world, rather, or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. Now, in an attempt to assign everything a quick and easy meaning, we overlook just how multifaceted the words of Scripture can be. The things Paul listed as all yours can have multiple applications. Uh, there's not just one definition or application for these things. Let me suggest a couple for each. So he says, Paul and Apollos and Peter are yours. These first century men made an impact on the world that can be traced forward to you getting saved. They are part of your spiritual ancestry, your spiritual fathers. Uh, all this ancestry.com and swabbing and all that, that's fine. I told you I'm not going to do it because I don't want to know anything about my past other than I already know. But wouldn't it be cool to trace your spiritual ancestry and see where you kind of came from spiritually? I wonder if you're related some way to the Apostle Paul. If somebody that he got saved, who got saved, who got saved down through you, or Peter, or I probably am, you know, I've always felt like I was a descendant of Bartholomew. (laughs) One of the little known disciples. But anyway, you understand what I'm saying. Now, we also can get from this that God still sends us to plant and sow. You are somebody's Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Uh, The world is yours to work in as a laborer with God. It is meaningful, life-changing work. But he's also given us the world to struggle against, honing our skills in spiritual warfare as good soldiers of Christ. Life or death is yours. Can't help but remind you of Paul's epic statement that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's a powerful, liberating way to live and to approach the afterlife. Life or death is also yours in the sense that you have every spiritual resource you require to live for God and that you know all you need to know about the afterlife. Things present or things to come are yours and that you are to live now in such a way that you are ready for the things the Bible says are coming upon this world. For us, that means we're preparing for the imminent rapture. And things present or things to come also reminds you that you can be in the world enjoying it without becoming enslaved by it, knowing that in the future rewards await. And so that's a very small example of what we saw earlier, the deep things of God. You can think of your own application. So maybe you're listening to me or you're reading Warren Wiersbe or another commentary and somebody says, well, what he means by death here is this. That's one of the things that Paul might mean by death. But what does it mean to you? And as long as you stay within the context and the the confines of what is scriptural, let it minister to you. And so there are many layers of meaning. And, And it doesn't mean deep in the sense of an elite knowledge that only a few possess. It means that you can never exhaust 
the Lord speaking to you through his word. And then verse 23, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. In the great plan of salvation, God the Father sent Jesus because he so loved the world. Jesus died on the cross, lifted up on it so that all the world would be drawn to him. He is thus the savior of all men, especially those who believe, from God to Jesus to us. So what is on our spiritual marquee? I don't know. It's ultimately up to the Lord. He would have to write us a letter like he did to the seven churches in Revelation. And it would probably be something that we're not expecting, either good or correctional. But if we concentrate on serving him, and if it actually costs us something, he'll write something worthy of eternity. Amen?